Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you for your presence right now. We thank you, Lord, that you are not a king that is not well acquainted with your people, that you would send your Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the living God would occupy our very soul and control the way we think and the way we live. And the Bible would say that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the sinful nature of the flesh. You are available to us, God. Great King, you're available to us, God. And why do the nations rage? For our King is still set on his throne. Why should we be afraid? For if God is for us, who can be against us? And why should we cower? And why should our concern overwhelm us? Because our king, he's still seated. He's not walking around pacing, wondering with anxiety. Because he is in control. And so God, today... Would you heal our hearts? Would you heal our nation? Would you speak right now from your throne room through a man? Would you do that in a way where we know that you spoke? God, could we leave this place more whole, more healed? And could we be more prophetic? Could we speak into this culture? God, we confess the culture has spoken into us, but we must be people that speak in. And so, God, I ask you that your presence would captivate me. I pray that I would be in, I would be in a trance with the Holy Spirit in such a way where you would move on the hearts of people and there would be healing in this room and power in this room and transform the heart of the one that doesn't know you, and bring close the one that is afraid of you, and heal all the, those that are here, God. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have been in a series on justice. And in that series, when we started off this series, we initially started off with talking about the government. And what we initially said was that there is no political party that could in any way capture the beliefs and the heart of God's people. And what we said was that the people of God are part of the kingdom of God. And we are to live out God's comprehensive rule in all of life. And so what we realized is that our response to government needs to be what Jesus' response to government was when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and give unto God what is God's. And what he was saying is our allegiance and our alignment is to God. And what is ever happening in the political realm should not cause us concern or to be afraid because we had a king. And then last week we talked about the biblical definition of justice and we talked about the shalom of God and how in the kingdom of God, all things are working together. They're working as they should be. And we are the people of God living here on earth, living out the shalom of God, meaning that we, because our lives have been brought together now, can live out that peace and live out that life in such a way where we can mend our lives into the broken parts of this world. And we could bring healing into this world because it is unjust to have the grace of God and not offer and extend that to other people. But this week, we were already planning on talking about racial inequality and racial injustice. And if we have ever been privy to the idea that we live in a fallen and broken world, this week was that week. Uh, on November 8th, 
Um, on Tuesday night, I was at a hotel doing some work with other church planters, and that night went to back to my room and watched the election results like many of you did. And on that night, um, I was as surprised as many of you were that Donald Trump was elected as our president. And in that surprise and in that shock, there was a point in me that had to reconcile in my mind. So I, I found myself reading a lot and praying a, not, a lot and having to take into consideration what has happened. 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. 60 million. And in, in so doing, um, <clears throat> when we, well, let me not say we, some of you may have voted for Donald Trump, so that's, um, be careful in how I position this, but when many of us hear or heard Donald Trump's words, we heard someone who was clearly, clearly had a tendency towards misogyny. It wasn't even a hidden idea. Who, when he talked about Mexicans, illegal Mexicans, made it very clear that he would call them rapists, not even speaking to the dignity of Mexicans when he talked about Muslims, saying that there needed to be a ban on all Muslims, not even thinking in his mind that Muslims are all over the world and that he didn't think in a detailed way about what he was saying. It, it, it just seemed so wild and so unhinged and so unthoughtful that it stoked the fears of many people. And when he talked about how black people or African Americans were living in hell, no nuance, no clarity about what we have accomplished in this world. And so when many people heard him, they heard the heart of a racist, the heart of a misogynist. But there were things that he said when he talked about having to renegotiate NAFTA, when he talked about having to deal with China, and calling China a uh, currency manipulator, when he talked about having to deal with manufacturing jobs and coal jobs, when he talked about those things, there were other people that heard something else. When he talked about abortion, when he talked about putting in conservative Supreme Court justices, there were other people that heard other things. It would be inappropriate and unrealistic for us to say that all 60 million people that voted for Donald Trump are racist. If you were to look on a map, you will see our real country, not if you looked at the states that voted for Donald Trump, but if you look at the counties. If you look at the counties in this country, we live in a very red country. In fact, what will blow your mind is if you look in New York State, New York State is much more red than it is blue. We live in a very conservative Republican country. 70% of this country is Anglo. Every single state in this country is majority Anglo, with the exception of Hawaii. Praise God for Hawaii. <laughs> So we have to be careful in how we talk because there were real concerns that people voted for and there were real concerns that they had when they went into that voting booth. But the reality is that there is, at the very epicenter of this vote, race. We cannot hide from it and we cannot pretend it's not there. And right now, as the prognosticators are talking through this, some would say race is not an issue at all, and some would say race is the only issue. And I would tell you today that it is a mixed bag. It is a mixed bag. We, as a church, need to be specific with how we deal with this Trump era and how we move forward. Now, 
<laughs> I was in the gym, and a gentleman and I started talking, and he, he started crying, and he said, Trump's not my president. And I, I said, I could understand that. He says, no, 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 he shouldn't be your president either. I said, well, he is my president. And that's just the way it is. Mayor de Blasio's my mayor. He's my president. That's just the way the government works. He says, well, he's not my president. I say, well, you can say that, but he is, he is the president of the United States coming in January. And let me be clear, I am praying for his success because to pray for his failure would be like praying for the failure of the pilot of the plane that I'm on. He is the president of my country. Of course I want him to be great. Of course I want him to be successful. I'm, on, I'm in this and we're in this together. And so we'd be foolish not to support him where he can be supported, but vehemently oppose him where he is to be opposed. <laughs> my dad, my dad called me. He called me two days later. And he said, um, how you doing? I said, man, I'm, 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 I'm struggling. You know, this is crazy. We elected this racist. I can't believe it. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. How's your church doing? I said, well, they're in shock. He said, I bet they are. I said, uh, well, what makes you say that? He says, this is my dad. So just preface it with that. <laughs> my dad was born in 1943, okay? My dad said, y'all ain't never been through nothing. <laughs> He said, yeah, I know you're shocked. This is what he said. He said, can you imagine how I felt when I was in college the night that Martin Luther King was shot? You imagine how I felt? Do you imagine what we, the rage we felt? When they were not just hidden with their racism, open with their racism. He says, I've lived through all that. And he says, you grew up in a time where you have the internet and you got Oprah and Michael Jordan and you thought you were accepted because they were accepted in entertainment. He said, but that was all a camouflage. And as we continue to talk, he said this, and let be clear, the electoral booth was a confessional booth, America telling us who she is. But she's always been that way. She's always been that way. It's always good to talk to your dad, you know. This is the same man that I would fall on the ground or something when I was young, and while all the other parents were coming around like, oh my God, get up, get up, come on, get up, you got it, you got it, come on, get up, you're going to be all right. And that was that, what that call was like. Does it hurt? Okay, get up, move forward. Get up. There's much work to do. And so part of what I want to tell you is I understand it hurts. Oh, but we got work to do. And we have to move forward. And I want to tell you as a church, whenever you were born, be clear about this. You were born for this moment. And you've been built for this moment. This moment is not bigger than me, and it is not bigger than you. You have been created and designed for the very purpose of being here right now for him as your president. And this will be the story you tell your kids. And you will be on the phone telling them about the day when he was elected. And you will encourage them and tell them to get up. We would be remiss if we go through this moment and we don't have an honest conversation about where we've been. Part of our greatest challenge is that we don't have a palatable sense of where we've been in regards to race. You cannot understand the United States of America and not understand race. Interestingly enough, when I was growing up, I used to think that was a radical thought. I used to hear people talk about race and America, and, and I would always think, man, just, you know, why don't we quiet down the conversation regarding race and all of a sudden, we'll just look at each other as who we are, Americans. 
And as I've, as I've just lived my life, it is so clear. We cannot have true healing without true confession, without a true sense of understanding who we are and where we've been. And that is one of the greatest problems of the race conversation in our country. We want to fast forward into a kumbaya and a Revelation 7 where we're all around the throne worshiping with all different types of nationalities. We want to hold each other's hands and not talk about the problem. How many of you know that real issues are never worked through without talking about the problem? Oh, we got to talk about it. <laughs> we got to talk about it if we're going to have an authentic relationship. So allow me, if you would, to help you see where this country has been in order for us to really see where we are and how we are to move forward. You know, in the 1600s, we lived in a very different world in this country. Between the periods of 1619 to 1660, this country was filled with immigrants. And those immigrants that came over and did not have a skill would lend themselves out as an indentured servant. And in, in indentured servitude, they would give themselves seven years, just like Jacob did, seven years to lend themselves out. Oftentimes, in that seven-year period, though, there came a point where the servant no longer wanted to live out that time. So he would run away. Now, mind you, during this time, the, the first black couple ever recorded, Anthony and Isabella. We don't even have their last name. Anthony and Isabella. Everyone is living in harmony. Black uh, uh, workers have indentured servants that are white. White workers have indentured servants that are black. Everyone is working in harmony, and the terminology black and white aren't even in the vernacular. It's only based upon where you came from, not what you look like. But everything changed in 1660. Because in 1660, there came a conclusion that as indentured servants started to run away, the darker-skinned ones were easier to catch. The, the ones that were more pale were able to blend into society, whether they were Irish or Italian or Swedish. They were able to blend into society, and the darker-skinned ones were easily noticeable. So in 1660, it was basically ratified that the darker-skinned indentured servants would now be, it was now enacted that they could have lifelong servitude. And then terminology began to get created around that. And everyone that was lighter, paler, started to call themselves white. And those that were darker would be black. And so the very definition of black and white was based upon the injustice of being able to run away from indentured servitude and being caught. And from there, in the, once you hit the 1700s, in the 1700s, slavery was, for the large part, a part of our American society. Slavery was upheld by three different posts, three different pillars. An economic pillar. The economy basically worked better with slaves. In the book, uh, there's a book called The Half That Hasn't Been Told. The author there goes into detail as he looked into economic records of slaves and indentured servants. Indentured servants would be able to pick about 80 to 120 bales of cotton, but a slave would pick over 200 bales of cotton a day. Amazing what fear will do inside of a man, inside of a woman. And so slavery worked better for the economy. And so there was cohabitation now, breeding now, a man worth $600, a woman worth $300. And now you cause them to breed together, produce more. But the economy was just one part of it. There was also the political aspect. The Fifth Amendment ratified that 
there would be no withholding. In other words, um, the word I want to I use for it. No person shall be deprived of life or property. No person shall be deprived of life or property. Well, the Fifth Amendment was interpreted as slaves as being property and not being persons. And so the very Constitution itself upheld the slave-like nature of our country. Fourteen out of 18 of our first presidents all had slaves as a part of their lifestyle and a part of the way that they lived out their creed. But then there was the religious element. The church supported the economy, supported the politics by saying things like the curse of Ham. In Genesis chapter 9, there was this young man Canaan that came in on Noah. Noah had gotten drunk and was naked and Canaan walks in and, and Noah curses him. And as he curses him, interpreters would say that the curse must have been from the fact that Canaan was a descendant of Ham and Ham's name means black. So that must mean that black people are descendants of Ham and black people are cursed. And now that now empowers us to keep slaves. Now, all those biblical gymnastics I just did, you would think people would just get privy to that and hear the foolishness of that. But I want to let you know the curse of Ham was taught in seminaries up till 1980. The church said, slaves, obey your master. Interestingly enough, in the Bible, the Bible is actually talking about indentured servitude. But the slave master, in order to keep his economic power, read that as literally as he could and said it was ordained, and ordained by God and slavery was a divine institution. and the sadness of the church. The church did great things during this era, but the sadness of the church, when you would have black men and black women cohabitating, slave owners would perform weddings, but they would never announce the name of God in the wedding. They would just say, till death do you part, but they would never enact the name of God. There was a stud system, meaning that they would get the strong black male, and make him a breeder and have him sleep with as many women as he could. And so you could go onto one slave property after another, and you would have all these kids running around not knowing who mom or dad is. Hundreds of years of this. Now, this is what I want to say. The men doing this were deacons. The men doing this were elders. The men doing this were pastors. They were trustees. They were in the very pews that you are in now. They were Christians. And they upheld the very, they buttressed the very definition of slavery in this country. In 1863, we had the Emancipation Proclamation, and that meant that black men were free to roam the earth, but they were not defined as a man. From 1865 to 1877, black people, in spite of having the years, 200 some years, of not having any kind of formal education, not being allowed to read, not having family structure, for those 12 years from 1865 to 1877, they thrived. A black man became governor of Louisiana. There were all types of political and economic thriving elements that, that black people were able to overcome. But in 1877, politically, the president, Ruther B. Hayes, decided that he wanted to have a compromise. He made a deal. And in making that deal for votes, he now said he would allow the troops to be taken from the South 
And from that point on, once the troops were taken from the south and they were not enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation, there were then a number of uh, lynchings, drownings, and murders all happening. This, this was buttressed by the idea of the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws all came right after that. Jim Crow basically on paper said it was okay, it was a good thing to segregate the races. And this was keeping an, an, a group as a caste system at the bottom and keeping African Americans down at the bottom of that caste system. But the reason why this is so important to understand even for today, these in, in 1963, Martin Luther King marched on Washington. There were people yelling free in 63 because there had been years of the Emancipation Proclamation, but it was only replaced by Jim Crow laws, and people were sick and tired, and they were fighting for their freedom. And so Lyndon B. Johnson, in 1964, he signed what was called the Civil Rights Act. Now understand this, Lyndon B. Johnson was a Democrat, and when he signed the Civil Rights Act, what he was essentially doing was giving the Republican Party all white Southern voters. White Southern voters wanted to keep the economic oppression of Jim Crow as a system. So when he signed that into place, it had all black people, minorities, and mostly Northerners going to the Democratic Party. And Southerners and anyone who agreed with slavery and or Jim Crow would go to the Republican Party. And that became the basis of that. And so Lee Atwater, if you watch the movie The 13th, Lee Atwater details how this Southern strategy of stoking the fears of white people, getting them to be afraid of the ending of the Jim Crow laws. And this Southern strategy meant that you would now have Republicans steep on these fears and be able to recruit more to the Republican Party. And this is why we have such a clear distinction. This is why African Americans classically vote Democrat. Because it has been a part of, the, of since 1964, it has been essentially the means by which black people could have a voice. From that point on, from 1964 on, we have had a, a war on crime. That war on crime, essentially, going after inner cities. When you hear a war on crime, it is not talking about rural America. It is talking about inner cities, a war on drugs. And the war on drugs and the war on crime is, and this, is actually, this has actually been documented, those were code words for dealing with the race problem in this country. Because the war on crime could have been a war dealt with as a health problem, but it was dealt with as a criminal problem. And so this attacked the inner cities and attacked our country. In the 60s, in the 70s, and the 80s, African Americans have been able to thrive. And as, as my dad said, we had the first of everything, the first black quarterback, and the, the first Jesse Jackson runs for office in 1988. And you have all these elements of black exceptionalism. But meanwhile, underneath all of that, there was still a rising tide of African-Americans being placed into prison for nonviolent offenses. Meanwhile, here in Brooklyn, there was redlining happening, keeping African-Americans in one, basically, subsection of society. This is what you call structural racism, racial inequality. And one of the greatest problems of the church 
is that we've always had a time detailing the fact that there is structural racism. We were very, we fought well during the time of overt racism. But now that racism has a quieter nature to it, it is more policy oriented. There is less of a fight. In the 60s and the 70s, the black church began to grow and the black church would fight, but the white evangelical church was silent. Billy Graham didn't have nothing to say about the civil rights movement. Was silent. And Christianity in this country has consistently occur encouraged the oppressed to live a quiet life, but has not had a message for the oppressor. Christianity in this country has a tendency to tell people who are being oppressed, turn the other cheek, but we are not telling the oppressor to stop hitting people. We have a tendency in this country. We have a tendency in this country to have Christianity about your personal prosperity, but not deal with the structural degradation of people, the marginalized groups in this society. We have a problem because we have Christianity built as individualism for myself. That's why that is the very nature of the prosperity gospel. You can get more, go for more for you, but what about your brother who is hurting And because the church has not been built with that kind of language, in the 60s, we had to look outside the church. And let me say, even though God may use people that will, we, we would never say we're Christian or whatever, all truth is God's truth. So it would take a Malcolm X or an H. Rap Brown. It would take people like Stokely Carmichael to be able to say that black is beautiful. It took these folks, and yes, Martin Luther King certainly helped in that, in that era, and there was incredible organizations by the church. But the holistic nature of the movement for African Americans to have dignity had to be birthed somewhat in the church, but it had to spill over outside of the church. And if we look at where we're at today, on July 13th of 2013, Alicia Garza, she is an Oakland-based community activist. This was the day that George Zimmerman was acquitted of killing Trayvon Martin. And on that day, she was so hurt, so shocked in an interview, she said she felt vulnerable, exposed, and enraged. And she had concluded that black people weren't safe in America. And so, that night, she began to write on a Facebook post how her life mattered and how black lives matter. Her friends, who were community organizers as well, started to pick up on it, and so they decided to have a Tumblr account, and on this Tumblr account, what they said was, let's get all our friends to come together and share stories about how black lives matter. Share stories of how black lives matter. These women do not espouse any kind of theological insight. They are openly against the church in terms of being a part of one. But they're saying, let me get my friends together to tell stories of how black lives matter. And let's create a hashtag to talk about how black lives matter. Let's share all these stories. And while she's gathering all the stories of how black lives matter, the sadness is that the church has a story. The church has a story. The church has a story of how black lives matter. The church has a story about people not mattering. It has a story about people being made in the image of God, 
all people being made in the image of God. It has a story of how people, when they are abused and they are hurt, it is as if, as we read last week in Matthew 25, you are doing that to Jesus himself. And in our faith, the Son of God comes in front of those who are being oppressed and say, if you do that to them, you are doing it to me. We have a story, and we just don't tell it. You see, they had to come together to share stories while we have a story. Jesus, in John 13, 34 through 35, says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You've got to understand what was happening during this time, that Jesus was taking a community of Gentiles, people that were far from knowing God, and he was taking Jews, and he was taking tax collectors, and he was taking prostitutes, and he was taking people from all types of different ethnic persuasions, all types of different government institutions, and placing them in the church. And so he says, I've got something new for you, a new community, a new humanity, a love ethic that will totally transform the way you see each other. And if you look in this verse, he's saying it's a new commandment, but if you were to look in all the old, uh, the New Testament, again and again, it says love one another, love one another, love one another. And the only reason why the Bible is saying love one another is because the church is intended to be filled with enemies. People that Don't come together just because they have the same ethnic background. Don't come together because they have the same financial dealings. Don't come together because they're of the same place or of the same race. They come together because they have the blood-bought promise of Jesus Christ, and they come together under that better. And he tells them, I know the old way of living, how you stratify yourself and how you place yourself in different boxes. That is the old way of living, a new commandment I give you, a new people we will create. And people will know us for this. Our brand, our design, people will know us for this. For our love for one another. And this church, this church will be known for its love. It's love for one another, and it's love for those outside in the world. And we will fight for unity. But let me be clear. The church cannot have as an ethic unity alone. We must be unified in our fight against injustice. Dude brought me in one time to do a talk on race. And I said, uh, well, I'm going to talk about some of the race, you know, of the past. He says, well, we just want to do racial reconciliation. I said, well, we can't have a talk about racial reconciliation until we have a talk on racial injustice. I said, well, we didn't want you to bring you that. I said, then you don't want me. He says, well, we just want to be able to get everybody in the same room. And I said, I think you want the picture of diversity, but not the work of diversity. As I said last week, I would give up the position of pastor of this church to go around the nation and just talk about the need for the church to come together and talk about justice. It is not an inner city thing. It is not a black thing. It is a Jesus thing. 
justice is a Jesus thing. I don't know. I, an alien from outer space could read the New Testament and be like, Jesus liked the poor, right? Is that, I mean, that was his thing? That you do not have to be a theologian to get that. But somehow we've taken Jesus, Americanized him, and made him into a CEO, not that person that was a humble servant that gave himself to marginalized, broken people. We will be unified, but we will be unified for justice. That's why we do things like the I Am Known campaign. That's why we're doing stuff with Do Justice. We're doing it because it is, the express, it is the living out of the Bible, the living out of the text. But it is the way Jesus feels. It is the actual way Jesus feels. The church should mimic the way Jesus feels about things. <laughs> you say, well, how do we know? How do we know how he feels? In Mark chapter 11, Verses 15 through 17, incredible text. Jesus is coming into the temple. It says, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought into the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is not the way the church is supposed to be. And how did Jesus feel about it? Well, look, what did he do? He walks into the temple. Now understand, the temple was segregated. The temple had a division for Gentiles, a division for women, and a division for men, and then the priests. And there were these walls that were all set up so that you would be quarantined into your corners. And all the money changers were where the Gentiles were, exploiting them because they were impoverished. The money cha- so basically they had turned the church into a mall. And they knew that the Gentiles felt far from God. And they just want to be able to get in there. So the the lowest form of sacrifice was a pigeon. So they would take their pigeon. In other words, they would take all they had, and they had their pigeons, and they're out there, and they're like, well, Jesus, you know, God is way out there, and we're Gentiles, so I'll just take my pigeon, and I'll come in, and, and oh, I, I, have, uh, I have Roman money, so I need Hebrew money, so Jewish money, so let's do a money exchange. So we'll exchange money right here. Those are the money changers. And then we have the pigeons, and so I'm, I'm giving my pigeons to you. And so there in the bazaar of the Gentile square is the money changers and those who would sell the pigeons. And what did Jesus do? Do you see what Jesus did? He walked up in the temple. And I feel like it was, st- I feel like, remember, um, Taken? He's like, I got a, I got a set of skills, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Jesus was calm with it. And just walked up to the money table and was like, whoop. And just looked at him. He didn't even trip. (coughs) And look, he overturned the tables and the seats. You peep that? Blah! Flip that over. I'm going to knock that down. Of the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then this is crazy. So, so look. And there are people who are carrying around the pigeons they just sold. And the money. And look. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the table. Temp help. So this is like when my mom, get, get, get that out your hand. Boy, yes. 
Oh, 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 I bet you we were running away. He's flipping over tables. He's kicking down chairs. He's knocking stuff out. And at some point, money's on the ground. Pigeons are flying everywhere. Chairs are everywhere. Everybody's tripping. Who is this? And he stands up and he says, this, my house. My house shall be called. And he was quoting Isaiah. So the Jewish people didn't even know what to do. Because he was quoting a text and putting himself in it. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Didn't you read that? Your structure is keeping them out. Don't you see that? You're exchanging money. You're, you're, you're getting the prayer. You're getting the money from the people. When this is, should be for prayer. This should for, be for people who feel far from God, don't you know? They should be able to be the first people in. And he flips over the tables and kicks down the chairs and knocks all the money out of their hands. This was a race-based structural system to destroy and to... Um, to make Gentiles feel undignified. This was, all, this was all racially based. And Jesus didn't just get frustrated, he hated it. Now, I want you to understand this though, when it says he drove out the money changers. In John chapter two, I think we have it up there. In John chapter two, it says, and making a whip of cords he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Here's what I want you to understand, and be ve- I want to be very, very clear. When it says he drove them out, <coughs> he had a whip. He was whooping their behinds. <laughs> I mean, he was just literally just whipping them. So they didn't just like see him and be like, oh, there goes Jesus. They were like, oh, 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 ah, and they'd run out. But I just want you to be clear, he made the whip. That's an important point. There is a difference between murder and premeditated murder. When you premeditate something, it means you thought it through. It means you took your time. It means you thought about it. Jesus knew what was happening in the temple, sat down, got some cords together. He's like, I'll take this. You know what? That's not thick enough. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this. And I'm going to make me this cord. Hey, how are you doing today? And he made the cord. He was not out of control. He was very much in control. He just hated what he saw. I want us to be careful as a church to not be out of control. Our rage must be selective. We have to be very clear. See, the culture, and much of the culture has rejected God himself, and they have no hope. So this is a very big moment right now. I I think this is probably your greatest witness is how you respond to Donald Trump. You've been praying for witnesses' opportunities? This This is it. What you think about the election? What you gonna say? There is such thing as selective rage. And we as a community just have to be careful. You know, one day I was asked, well, do you partner with Black Lives Matter? Of course we'll partner with Black Lives Matter. We'll partner with any group that lines up with the kingdom of God. And because black lives actually matter, we'll partner with them. <laughs> That's not a problem. But that doesn't mean we always do what they do. And it certainly does not mean we act like they act all the time. The term Black Lives Matter, I'm all about, but sometimes the organization, we need to be prophetic towards them too. He made the cord. I believe we as a community, I'm just going to say this, if you only hear me say this, then you will take me out of context. So let me just say this, and then, you know, you can email me or whatever. 
But I honestly believe in my heart of hearts that Donald Trump is the best thing that we could have got. Because I believe that if Hillary Clinton was elected, we would have went back to just living our lives and having, you know, we, we didn't, I'm gonna just, just be really real with you. We elected Barack Obama and didn't hold that brother accountable to nothing because he's very charismatic. Michelle Obama, that's my girl. It's like, oh, she's cute. <laughs> I love Malia. That's like my uncle, Barack, my uncle. I just feel this connection with them. I don't know what it is. I love them. I do. I really do. I really love their dignity. I, love, I feel like I have this connection with them. But the problem is sometimes personality can saturate your mind so much that you don't speak truth. And what I want to tell you is that you have someone that you are now going to keep an eye on. Now you are watching what they say and watching what they do. You're hearing what they talk about. You're looking up different policies. But we should have been prophetic in the first place. We should have been holding the government accountable in the first place. You're like, well, this is not my government. It is your government. Hold them accountable. We must be selective with our rage. So I just want to encourage you in that Jesus is very upset in the moment of structural racism, but Jesus is very calm in how he selectively deals with it. You take that same posture. You take that same posture on, on the internet. You take that same posture in your workplace. Don't ever let people slip and think that Jesus is not your king. I, uh, I was... Um, I was in the gym. Praise God. Y'all are a trip, man. I can't even. That, that, in communication, we call that the transition. Just trying to transition to a last point. Um, I was in the gym. And um, there was a guy in there I've been witnessing to for the last few months. He is a, he's an atheist. And, uh, and I just... I just jokingly said, man, what about that election? And he started to cry. And he said, James, I, I don't know, you, you don't really know me, so let me just tell you this. I, I, I am so amazed right now that we, our country would elect someone like that. I can't believe it. And I said, well, you know, I mean, we're going to be okay. He says, see, that's what you religious people do. You always try to find the silver lining and stuff. And he says, let's stop. Let's stop all that. Hate crimes are going to go up. Refugees won't be allowed to come in. There will be hate crimes against Trump supporters, and Trump supporters will give now hate crimes. And it's only going to get darker. And he says, this is, he says, and he, he said, I don't even know if I want to be here anymore. And, you know, his volume got a little bit too loud, so I was kind of like, just chill for a second. But I was just like, um, listen, man, as you, <clears throat> he, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm an African-American man, and uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we've lived through so much more than this. My dad worked, my grandfather, James T. Roberson Sr., worked in the paper mill in Moss Point, Mississippi. He rose up to become the manager in that paper mill. He still had to drink at the black water fountain, and the men that he managed would call him a nigger when he left. This was my grandfather. This was a man I knew. You understand? We've worked through so much more than this. He says, well, I, I know that's what you guys always say. I said, well, I'm, I, said, I said, Clay, let me just be clear with you. My hope is not built on a president, and it is not built in this country. My hope is built in another place. And I know that sounds to you like Mamsie, Pamsie, flying spaghetti monsters. I know that sounds crazy to you. 
I get that. I know. I understand. But I just want you to hear me say, I just want you to hear me say, I am not afraid. So you think my belief is crazy, but I'm calm. Because I believe in that king and I believe in that kingdom. Years ago, a song was made. Go to that la- second to last slide. Gustavus de Pike. I said, no more auction block for me. No more. No more. No more auction block for me. Many thousands gone. But the tune of that song was so powerful because it had this melodious element to it. No more auction block for me. No more, no more, no more auction block for me, many thousands gone. Now, they made that song through their pain. In the 1800s, they made that song. And a songwriter would write a song, I Shall Overcome, and it was picked up on. And someone in the midst of the civil rights movement thought, we shall overcome. And it was actually a song that was just steep. They, they combined the two songs and thought, we shall overcome. We should sing, we shall overcome. And someone took the melody of the No More Auction Block song and put it to We Shall Overcome. And the melody of the past was behind the words of today. In a second, Mark is going to come up and lead us in a song of We Shall Overcome. But I want you to know that the generations of the past, their melody is still flowing. And though the words are different today, though the situation is different today, that melody in the background of no more auction block for me. It is now in we shall overcome. And what I want to tell you, church, is it's time for a new song. This is your generation. What will your song be? Oh, artists, you need to get busy and start writing songs. Those in fashion, you need to get busy and allow this to be a creative moment. This should be a moment where we are allowing the glory of God not just to be held to preachers and pastors, but there is a priesthood of all believers and all your gifts should be on display for the glory of God. What is going to be your song? But know whatever song is your song, the melody of the saints of old is in the background, humming along with you. This is not a new moment for our country. This is an old moment, but you've just been placed in it now. You are ready. You are prepared. And you have been built for this moment. Yes, weeping will endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And I'm not saying joy will come in four years. There will be a brighter day. And if from a political aspect, things even get worse. They cannot take away our song. They cannot take away our song. Would you stand with me? Mark, would you lead us? We shall overcome. I wonder if you would sing it with Mark as if the saints in heaven, those who were martyred and died, those who marched in the name of Jesus. Would you sing it like there is a great cloud of witnesses singing along with you, saying, we shall overcome. And in heaven they are saying, we overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And one day you, one day you will be in that great cloud and there will be people on earth and you will be saying, we overcame.
We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.